This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so, Carol, I woke up this morning here on the West Coast. You know, according to you, I probably just woke up like 10 minutes ago, but I actually did wake up a little earlier. uh, And these headlines that started to cross about what's going on at BlackRock fascinating. Larry Fink, of course, the founder of the firm. You go back a little ways, 20 or so years ago, was just a small firm kind of inside of Blackstone, and yet it has become a juggernaut. But looking ahead to growth, shuffling management, Annie Massa mm-hmm. joins us now uh, in our New York studio to break it down. Uh, tell us what's going on, Annie, because this has bounced very, very high across Wall Street. Yeah, so the big news today is that there's this leadership reshuffling happening at BlackRock, and it includes several different parts of the business. But one major um, change is that they're taking um, their regional, a more regional focus with regional leaders um, kind of overseeing institutional client businesses. So it all fits into a strategy of really focusing on global growth. Why are they doing this? Why now? What happened? Yeah. <laughs> Is there a catalyst that we're all missing? Because it, it certainly, I think, hit us all by surprise a little bit, right? Yeah. Well, I think that uh, Larry Fink had flagged that some more leadership changes were coming mm-hmm. when he promoted Mark Weedman um, to this global strategy role earlier this year. And this is the big, you know, raft of changes that I think we were expecting. Um, So I I think that it's happening now because the U.S. market, U.S. asset managers in general are really under a lot of pressure across many fronts. Um, We talk about the fee wars a lot. And, um, you know, one strategy to grow is to look abroad to markets that aren't um, quite as saturated uh, beyond the U.S. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so this whole idea of like who their next set of competitors is or their newer set of competitors is also really fascinating to me. This active uh, management piece that they're clearly growing up the alternatives, uh, as it were, that that puts them in, a, in sort of a different category or part of the business in a different category, right? That's right. BlackRock is really striving to show that it can be a major player in alternatives. So think private equity, for example. And it's built up about a $100 billion or more business in that area. And they're looking to expand that because they're, when you look at their $6 trillion in assets under management, about two-thirds of that is in indexed products. So they're, they're trying to show that they can build an even more diversified business besides indexed what's, things. What's great, I think I heard this conversation um, that you had on, on the TV side. It's just, here's someone who has been so instrumental in driving funds or fees down, right? And increasing you know the investments that are going to these low-fee funds, the whole ETF world, right? And they're under pressure, right? And they've got to figure out either how to squeeze out costs or grow their business in other ways, more lucrative ways. Exactly. Where there might be more fees. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, you could never argue that the growth of passive investing hasn't helped BlackRock. Of course, no, it's right where it is today. 
But this is something that the entire asset management industry is struggling with right now. On passive products, fees are just going lower and lower. And so to really look for higher fee frontiers, you have to look you have to look beyond index products. So I think that that's part of the appeal of, um, you know, the alternatives business and the leadership um, changes today included some changes to that alternatives business globally and oversight. Well, and just the flood of private capital that continues. I mean, there's another uh, scoop out on the terminal just in the last little bit, Annie, that I'm sure you're aware of by our colleague, Hema Parmar, about Apollo launching seven new funds. Apollo Global Management launching seven funds really to take advantage of that seemingly insatiable appetite for private capital. So even while BlackRock gets into this, there are a lot of people uh, who really are stepping up their game presumably to just soak up all this money that continues to come at them. But to Carol's you know, really salient point, that's mu- those are much higher fee-generating businesses, too. That's right. Yeah, I think that as pension funds have become more um, interested in these kinds of investments, you're seeing all the asset managers really try and get in there and uh, compete with various kinds of products to serve them. $9 billion at Apollo. Hey, I just one last quick question, 30 seconds. So what does this mean for Larry Fink? Do we know who's going to take over? We don't <laughs> has know Has the yet. jockeying begun? <laughs> but the jockeying has most certainly begun. And I think that changes like this are always watched closely in terms of what they mean for what happens to BlackRock uh, You know, once Larry Fink might leave. Although it's increasingly likely, it, it seems that it's going to be someone named Mark. <laughs> there are a lot of Marks in the running. So many Marks. You. We didn't even talk about Mark Wiseman, who's also there, right? I mean, Mark Wiseman, Mark, 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 Mark McComb, and then you have a couple of Robs. There's lots of Marks and Robs in the leadership. Sorry, we'd love to consider you, but your name isn't Mark or Rob, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or Larry. Well, we can have a whole other discussion here on Equal Pay Day about uh, how many. Well, uh, can I say, I read that story and I'm like, where's the women? Where's the women? Like, blew my mind. Um, Annie Massa, thank you so much. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so let's get back to this story that I mentioned a few minutes ago when we were talking with uh, Annie Massa, because the context for this, in part, is BlackRock. I was doing this major reorg, Mm -hmm. focusing a little bit more on active management. And just across town, just a few blocks away, Apollo Global Management, the massive private equity firm, is like, oh, that's cool, really? We're going to raise $9 billion (laughs) for some new funds. It's a scoop on the terminal, getting a lot of attention. Hema Parmar joins us in New York to break it down. Seven funds? Hema, what the heck is going on? Yes, seven funds um, planned for this year across a number of different strategies. But yeah, uh, with plans to raise a total of $9 billion across all of them. The biggest is for um, a specific uh, program that lets um, investors in the fund participate in certain private deals alongside Athene Holdings. Um, But they're looking to raise $4 billion for that program, that fund alone. Uh, And then they're also looking to raise about a billion dollars for a couple of other different funds, one a real estate fund, one focusing on life settlements, one um, focusing on uh, companies in India. There's an aircraft finance fund that they're raising money for of about a billion, and then a revolver fund, which is about targeting 500 million, um, looking at sub-investment grade revolving credit facilities. So really is um, speaks to this big push that you're seeing, uh, a lot of money flowing into private equity, a lot of uh, dry powder, and a lot of opportunity for um, you know people to, to put their money to work in, uh, in, in a space when you see other 
investment options, some hedge funds struggling. Um, you know, we're seeing money shift towards private equity. Jason, it feels like an ETF for the big guys. Like, you know what I mean? Because they're very focused funds, right? It's, yeah. it's not like they're saying it's a general purpose fund and we're right. going to see where we find opportunities anywhere in the world. It's real estate. It's insurance. It's India. It's very, very specific. And what I love about this is it kind of opens the window into, okay, here's how Leon, Leon Black and his team are thinking about where the opportunities are in the investment world. Well, and it's so in there, and, and Hema knows this better than I. I mean, it's so in their sweet spot, too, especially mm-hmm. when you go down, you look at credit, you look at insurance. You know, you mentioned Athene. That's been a very successful bet for them in the insurance space. Um, but, you know, these are guys, Carol, as you recall, mm-hmm. who came out of Drexel, Burnham, Lambert. They know the sort of messy credit space better than anyone. And one of the ways that they've been so successful is that they have played the credit side, not just the traditional traditional LBO equity side of things. And I think if you look at some of the target returns, like for the India-focused fund, they're targeting gross returns of as much as 22%. Wow. Um, wow. Some of the other cool. funds are targeting, you know, between 8 and 10 or 11 and 14. But, um, you know, really interesting to see um, some of the, the, the scales there. And I love this, too. In terms of scales, they really brought down their fees, right? We're talking five-tenths of a percent management fee on committed capital and 10% of profits, right? Mm-hmm. It's yes. reduced, it sounds like, is it? The, the funds vary that's depending a far, on That's which a far fund. cry from two and 20, right? Right. That's what I'm Far thinking. Far from 2 and 20. <laughs> yeah. So what, that's interesting, though. Um, yeah. I mean, the funds are... There, there's a great deal of variation between each okay. of the funds. Um, the ones that we mentioned here, one is you know 0.5, which, yes, it looks, looks pretty good. Um, and then for the India-focused funds, investors who are legacy, um, those who are invested in the first close, they will get some kind of fee breaks. Um, but I think, uh, I, th- I think you know, you're, you're still seeing um, hundreds of billions of dollars over, um, over the years really flow into the space broadly. And if you look at the first quarter of this year, uh, these kind of funds raise about $240 billion in private capital. Wow. It's amazing. Well, and you point out in your story, Blackstone, you know, which is obviously the biggest of this type of firm, is aiming to gather about $100 billion this year. And that, of course, is well beyond you know just a, a straight-ahead vanilla private equity strategy. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's real estate. That's their own credit platform. GSO, and then you know through hedge funds, the hedge fund of funds, a, a world you know so well, Hema, they've been incredibly aggressive there as well. Yeah, when you're charging layers and layers on fees, fund of funds have been struggling to really keep keep assets. You know, broadly speaking, I wonder right. too what this means in terms of keeping some of the eco- economic momentum and market momentum going. Right, if they've got this money, as long as they deploy it, mm-hmm. right. Um, that could be, you know, incredible potential for various firms. And I think the deployment's really interesting because you've seen funds that have, uh, firms that have raised like $20 billion funds or have goals to raise $20 billion funds. And so uh, waiting to see, you know, how that's deployed and, and what kind of space and how you put that, that these huge amounts of monies to work uh, it will be really interesting moving forward. Yeah. This is great stuff. So, Hema Parmar, she is a scoop machine on the investing team. Her latest story, Apollo to launch seven funds in a hot market for private capital. Hot, to say the least. This is trending as one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg. Not surprisingly, insurance, real estate, and India, all on the minds of Leon Black, Josh Harris, and Mark Rowan, the founders of Apollo there at 7... 50, uh, 9 West 57th Street. Girl. I think what you have to say, Jason, too, about all that dry powder, right? We've been talking about the private equity firms. They've got a lot of money that they can put to work, and this is just kind of adding to that pile. It's a new dome. It's a new day. It's a new life. 
according to the World Economic Forum, it could take more than 200 years for women to reach economic equality. One individual working with companies to get there faster. Karika Roy, she is the CEO at Pipeline. She's joining us on Equal Pay Day. She's the CEO and co-founder of Pipeline Equity. She's on the phone from Denver, Colorado. And today's date, if you didn't know, it symbolizes how far into the year women must work to earn what men earned in the previous year. Karika, first of all, it's so great to have you here. You and I were together at the Bloomberg Equality Summit last week. We talked with a bunch of CEOs, um, eye-opening in some ways. Why does it take so long to get there? Yeah. Well, g- good afternoon. It's it's uh, great to be on Bloomberg Radio. And so there are um, mostly what it, what it boils down to is um, – that when you look at pay inequity, that uh, we undervalue the contributions that women make. And so when we make pay decisions, um, they are underpaid for the same work. And so, Katika, I I have to say, this seems like a really solvable problem, especially given how much data there are out there today that, that shows the issue. What is stopping us collectively from solving this? It's a great question. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've actually found here at Pipeline is actually the decisions that you make upstream from pay. So mostly uh, performance, so how you evaluate your talent as well as who's in the succession pipeline have a great impact on how you're actually paying your employees. And there's been a lot of, uh, so that's that's one. And then the, the second is that largely pay information has remained um secret and uh, not transparent, which is actually a key tenant of the Paycheck Fairness Act, which was actually passed on uh, last Wednesday on the same day as the Bloomberg Equality Summit, which would make uh, pay information more transparent. And we know from research that if we make it more transparent, we will close the gap. And what's interesting at the World Economic Forum this past year, this past January, um, they put out a paper and they highlighted some of the work that you're doing. And, you know, you and I talked, too, about this whole idea that you can't um, solve the gender pay cap by just talking about pay. There's a lot more involved. There is. Yeah. So the, the value decisions that you make... upstream from pay, so typically performance and potential, that is how you evaluate people, how they're doing their jobs, as well as who you're actually developing to be the future leaders of your company. Those two pieces, um, those two value that you're placing on your talent ultimately impact uh, how much you're going to pay them. And if we get that right, and that's what the World Economic Forum um, article talked about, that if we get that right, then uh, pay basically is just the quantitative value. And so, Katika, as, as you start to look into the data and you start to segment it out either by geography or by sector, size of company, are there, are there elements that emerge? Are there trends that emerge where you say, okay, well, this particular industry seems to be a little bit further along or this particular industry or this geography seems to be really lagging? Anything there that you see? That's a great question. You know, I, the two that, that I can comment on um, based on research, uh, one is that we know, interestingly enough, that from our industry and then intersectionality. So industry 
Uh, we know that um, in both energy and technology, they have lower pay gaps. I don't know the specific number, so I won't be able to cite that. Energy, they, really? That that surprises, surprises me. Isn't yeah. that surprising? And energy is actually the only one. Uh, we have a new uh, report coming out next week called the Equity for All Report. And energy is actually the only industry that is on target to remove its glass ceiling, that is the upward mobility of female talent, by next year. So that's, wow. that's one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's one. And then the second is intersectionality. So one of the things that is important to talk about on Equal Pay Day is that Equal Pay Day is actually the aggregate day across all women. Right. So that is... You know, so Asian American women, actually, their equal pay day is earlier in the year. White women is in a couple of weeks. And then when you start to look at uh, 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 black women's equal pay day, it's not till August. Native American women's equal pay day is not till September. And Latina's equal pay day is not till November. Wow. In essence, Latinas yeah. have to work almost an entire extra year to get to equal to, to make the same as um, what men make. That, just that is staggering. <laughs> it is staggering, right? And it's upsetting when we, especially when we see, right, the amount of women that are in the workforce today. Yes. And what's it, yes. And it's actually picked up just under one point over the last years. So it's gone up from uh, 46 to 47, but it's still on trend for women to continue to leave the workforce until 2026. And one of the ways that we keep them in the workforce is paying them equitably. So what's interesting, too, though, right, and that's a good point. I know in the discussion that we had um, last week at the Equality Summit here at Bloomberg, uh, we sat down with a bunch of CEOs. But the point was you've got to work from the top and the bottom, right, in terms of improving things. So CEOs have to – or boards need to put pressure on CEOs and companies. But you've also got to make sure that you're starting even at lower levels to be bringing people along. Yes, Yes, it's a both and. It's a grass tops and a grassroots issue because what the people, you know, middle management, so whether that's managers, so frontline managers or directors, they're taking their cues and making their decisions from what they see when they look up, right? So it needs to be something that is um, uh, that folks are held accountable for and that is actually reinforced over and over um, so- again in the work. In, in the workplace. Kodak, I just got about 40 seconds left here. So, you know, yeah. we all do, a lot of companies do bias training, right? So that you kind of recognize yeah. bias that's out there. Is that the solution or there's, that's not necessarily the best way? And really just got about 40 seconds here. Okay. So uh, what the research shows is that bias training doesn't work, that in actual fact, it makes it, it can make it worse. So that's one. Um, and two, if unconscious bias training would have solved, it would have uh, been the solution. It would have solved it already. What we know is that the um, answer is in the data, and that if we use the data and advanced technologies such as artificial intelligence and cloud computing, we can solve this issue. Katika Roy, you are the chief executive officer of Pipeline. Joining us on the phone from Denver, Colorado, here on Equal Pay Day. I have to say, I'm so happy you're mm-hmm. working on this. But man, yeah, Carol, the data. I mean, especially Staggering as Katika just you know sort of went through the different um, different women and yeah. then the different Equal Pay Days. That is really, as you say, that is depressing. That's why she talks about that intersectionality. It's not just gender, but there's so many other factors at play that create these inequalities. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. 
So we are going to talk about everywhere, but in particular, we're going to talk about the emerging markets, which have lagged developed markets so far this year, if you take a look at the MSCI indices. Here to explain uh, why he prefers emerging markets, Kevin Nicholson, Chief Market Strategist at Riverfront Investment Group. It's a firm that has about $7 billion in assets under management, based in Richmond, Virginia. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So, Kevin, nice to have you here. You and I have been chatting away about what's going on in the world. Um, Tell us a little bit about your kind of macro view and how that leads you to emerging markets. Sure. So right now, we continue to like the U.S. um, because it's, you know, it's the fastest growing. And when you look around the world, considering that the rest of the world is slowing down. However, we think that the greatest value is coming from emerging markets because as China has been able to try to stabilize its economy, uh, it is the epicenter of the rest of the world and global growth for global growth right now. Um, And so as China has tried to stimulate their economy thus far, it hasn't really worked um, from the consumer side, but now they're headed towards the business side. And this week, what we saw was that their PMIs started Mm -hmm. uh, to um, turn around. But as we joked, if we believe them, right? Because we're always so, you know, how transparent are they? Yeah, but you know, the last the last couple of months, you know, the manufacturing has been falling and fell below that, you know, the magic 50 line. And the fact that, you know, both the market and... um, and the uh, National Bureau of Statistics uh, PMI, uh, manufacturing PMI, came up at the same time. That's a positive thing. But more importantly, I think that it is going to help the rest of the world's growth because Europe is highly dependent upon um, the exports um, to uh, China. Japan is also very dependent on China as far as exporting their industrial um, goods there. And then the rest of the emerging markets complex is very um, dependent on China because of the the need of you know being able to send their raw materials to China um, for the whole supply chain. And so I think that um, when you look at the global economy, that emerging markets really has a lot to offer uh, in that sense. So, Kevin, I want to take you back to something you said just a minute ago, because in in some notes that you sent ahead, you talked a lot about Japan, and I feel like that is a part of the world, a, a country, an economy that has been really a cautionary tale for the United States. And, and certainly it feels even more apropos to talk about it in the context of Europe right now. Help us understand how you synthesize those. So when we think about Japan, we like Japan from a long-term point of view, but we understand that there's going to be some short-term pain with uh, Japan. And the, a large part of that has to do with the fact that Japan has become an overlooked place, an overlooked economy. Um, You know, when you think about Japan, you think about slow growth, you think about, um, you know, low inflation, you think about a place that's demographics are are going against it. But over the past couple of years, what you've seen in Japan is that you're starting to see foreigners come in and work in Japan. They've been, you know, while while the rest of the world is pushing back on immigration, they're allowing it. We had a great story, Jason, uh, in the double issue of the magazine that's a Business Week magazine that's on the newsstands right now. And Brian Bremner uh, wrote this story. He lived in Japan for Bloomberg uh, for many years. um, And we caught up with him here in New York. But, you know, he pointed out 
that Japan is still a rich country, home to some of the best infrastructure, fastest bullet trains, leading auto and robotics industries, one of the highest life expectancy rates, financial superpower, um, largest creditor nation, uh, provider of investment and savings, net external assets of almost $3 trillion. Uh, and they're the folks that are, you know, really lender, lending big time in Asia outside of China. I mean, we forget all of that, right? Because we just get caught up in kind of the negative headlines that we've seen year after year in terms of lack of inflation, lack of growth. Exactly. And I think that the other thing, too, that people forget is that Japan has changed from a governance standpoint. No longer are you worried about the Kiretsu. Um, you know, they've broken right, right. those apart. And so now the companies are actually thinking about you know, the return on equities. That was and the big post- corporate structure that controlled so many different exactly. parts of the business all, all along like kind of the supply chain. Yeah, exactly. So the fact that now companies are more um, focused on the bottom line and, you know, the return on equity, that's a big deal in Japan. And so that's why we like it long term. How do you uh, play it, though? How do you invest in it? We, you know, we just... Um, Invest in broad uh, Japan. Uh, at times, we have you know we've played the you know the small cap game uh, there. Yeah. But right now, we're just have broad exposure to Japan. And Europe, uh, there are some unfortunate corollaries there to where Japan was and where Europe is right now. Just about thirty seconds left. How much do you worry about that uh, looking at Europe right now? Well, I worry about it a lot. I mean, for a minute last week, you know, one day last week, you had German bonds that were yielding uh, less. They were more negative uh, than the Japanese 10-year. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so to me, that shows that you may have to start worrying about deflation in, in Europe and slower <laughs> growth. Right. If you think about the the lower yields, the negative yields, right? We've seen that certainly play out in the right. European markets. Right. Um, great to check to talk with you. We talked about stuff differently, <laughs> different stuff before we even got on air. Uh, so there'll be lots more when you come back next time. Kevin Nicholson, he's chief market strategist at Riverfront Investment Group. About seven billion in assets. Uh, Jason under manager, based in Richmond, Virginia, but in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Michael Sheldon back with us, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial Group, with us from Westport, Connecticut. And Michael, you remind us, thanks to Strategus Research, that the S&P 500 has not declined in the 12 months following midterm elections. And since 1948, going way back, there has not been a recession that started in the year three of the, or in year three, I should say, of the election cycle. Uh, that's some strong history, although history doesn't always prove right. But tell us a little bit about the, the role of politics here in our market. Well, we believe mostly in, uh, you know, the most important thing for us is to look at fundamentals. And those are things like sales, earnings, corporate profits, what the Fed is doing. Um, so those are the things that really drive our asset allocation, the sectors we want to invest in. But but you're absolutely right. I threw a couple of historical facts at you, which you mentioned, and I'll add one more, which is that when January 
February and March, the first three months are all positive, and this has happened only 19 times, or I should say 19 times since 1950, the average market gain from the beginning of April through the end of the, the year is an additional 10%. Uh, but keep in mind, average drawdown, meaning the markets do pull back at some point, the average drawdown has been about 9%. So with all those stats and figures, it, it does indicate that this year is off to a, a pretty solid start. And uh, you know, I think that sort of indicates that we need to have something come along to trigger a recession. The, the U.S. economy is sort of like a a tanker in the middle of the ocean, and it takes a lot to sort of change its direction. So that's why right now we see moderate growth this year. We kind of got spoiled by the 20% EPS growth last year as a result of the tax cuts. So we see moderate growth this year, and um, that's where we stand right now. And so as you look, Michael, at what what are the data, I should say, that you look at, or what are the reports, what are the signals that uh, could give you a hint? And, and I'm, I'm sort of teeing you up in part to talk about the yield curve, because we had a discussion right. about this earlier with our chief U.S. economist uh, about sort of the year, yield curve's importance in predicting what happens next. Sure. So the yield curve has gotten a lot of attention over the past few days, and that's because we saw a, a yield inversion, meaning that short-term rates went above long-term rates, or actually what happened is long-term rates fell faster than short-term right. rates this time around. And most people historically have focused on the spread between two-year and 10-year rates, but that still remains positive. That hasn't changed. But, but what changed this time around is that the yields on 10-year treasuries fell below three-month treasury bills. And the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco many years ago put out a paper on this and called it its single best forecasting tool. But I think this time around, it's important to point out a few things that inversions of the yield curve say little about the timing of a recession. Uh, there have been some false signals in the past, and they can also, the other thing is that you can have an inversion of the yield curve. Typically, um, it happens about 12 to 18 months or so before the actual economy starts to falter. And, and this time around, I think interest rates have been very low to start with, but we had an incredibly low rates in Europe. The Bund rate, the German 10-year equivalent, actually fell below 0%. And what I think you had is foreign investors probably came into U.S. markets in search of yield. And, we, and you also had a dovish turn by the Federal Reserve Bank uh, indicating they wouldn't lower rates or raise rates this year. So all of that sort of combined to push our yields lower. So as we speak today, by the way, the inversion has gone away and the yield curve between three-month treasuries three-month Treasury bills in 10 years is positive by, not by a lot, by about six basis points. So we'll see where things go. But it certainly is something that's unsettling and remains on our radar. So how do you play it then in terms of investments? Because from what I understand from some of my notes here, that you're favoring large caps over small caps. Um, it sounds like, you know, you're optimistic in terms of the potential for investment returns, certainly in the equity markets here. Well, keep in mind, we're off to a pretty good start this year. Yeah. I mean, if the year had ended today, I think most investors would be pretty satisfied with the returns in the market this year. I kidded with my colleagues. I was like, okay, this is it, right? Now we move to cash, right? Because this is good. This is a good year already. <laughs> and it's only April 2nd. True, but it's, life is never that easy. And remember that the markets also had a pretty big drawdown in the fourth quarter of last year. So we've pretty much made back all of the decline that we had last year, which we kind of thought was a little bit overdone. And so we're pretty much back to where we were at the, in the beginning of the fall last year. So looking ahead right now, again, uh, you know, our outlook is for moderate growth. We're starting to see some green shoots in, in Asia right now. 
the equivalent of the, of the U.S. ISM manufacturing index. There are two of those in China, but they both came out uh, before the open on Monday morning, which helped spur our rally yesterday. And they were both they both popped above 50 for the first time in several months. The ISM manufacturing index in the U.S. yesterday also rose just a little bit. So we're starting to see some green shoots that maybe this kind of soft patch, and there's still a lot of weak data in Europe, but maybe the soft patch is something that will start to to remove itself, and we'll start to see some better data as we get into the second half of the year, or maybe at least the second quarter. And what could get in the way here? Well, there are a number of things. The biggest thing on our on our on our radar right now is a trade deal with China. So I think because of this trade deal, a lot of companies have talked about the fact this is creating uncertainties in the supply chain. It's also raised input costs. Uh, corporate CEOs and CFOs have become more conservative. And if, importantly, if, if CEOs and CFOs start to reduce the amount of capex and hiring and investors start to worry about the outlook for the future, it, this could create a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where growth starts to slow on a global scale. So the trade deal with China is probably the most important thing. On a longer-term basis, we're worried about growing debt levels in the U.S. economy as well as overseas. But here in the U.S., our debt levels are now at $22 trillion, and at some point that will have to be addressed. Um, there's an old saying in economics that it's not a problem till it's a problem. So at some point down the road, I think that will start to get some attention. The other thing we're looking closely at is corporate profits. Over time, stock prices tend to follow the direction of corporate profits. Mm. And in the first quarter, which is corporate profits will start coming out in the next few weeks, growth is estimated to be down about 3.9% or so. So this will be about the first down quarter since, I think, the first quarter of 2016. Profits are supposed to slowly start to turn higher as we go through the year, and then we're expecting double-digit growth next year. So we'll have to watch corporate profits to see if that, in fact, uh, plays out. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Michael, thank you so much. Michael Sheldon, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer over at RDM Financial Group, joining us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. And Jason, I'm just looking at uh, the market averages. A bit of a mixed trade here, but uh, call it unchanged on the S&P, down about 70 points on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. NASDAQ holding on to some gains. In fact, it's near its uh, highs of the session, up about 22 points. I do think, too, as we get into tomorrow, we're going to start marking time because we're going to wait for that monthly jobs report. And I think investors are going to be a little bit on hold to see what kind of number we get. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.